Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. On the way here, so I went for a ride with a client this morning. I went to the office and installed some cleats for him, and then we went and rode. And then he went off to do his own thing, and then I rode home on this trail. And coming into town, there's like this wreck path trail, you know? It's like, I don't know, maybe six feet wide, kind of cinder path, sort of like um, as close as you can get to pavement without being pavement. Yeah. And usually what I do in those situations, I don't – I have – I mean, I've been riding bikes for 35 years, so I have like nine bikes. I'm not going to put bells on all of them. So I whistle when I ride on paths to try to alert people. And I found in general, it works really well um, because sometimes you give people an on your left and it's right. like they panic and they run and they sprint off the trail. <laughs> and this gets exactly to what you were just talking about. Like how, how do we take adult responsibility for our impact on other people independent of whether it's their own trauma that brought them to a certain response or their own experience or their own anxiety or their own fear or whatever it was. Right. Um, or maybe their own joy. Maybe they were stoned out of their minds. Who knows? But, but so I'm riding on this path and I'm whistling, I'm doing my thing. And three people in a row, like gave me this nice big smile. One woman actually said like, nice bell, you know, cause I'm like doing my thing. I'm just whistling. And sometimes I like imitate a bird. And sometimes I'm just listening to music and whistling with the music, but I'm just trying to let people know as far away as I, as I can, that I'm coming yeah, so that they're not, they don't have this negative experience of me passing them. Right. And usually it all works out. And, but this woman didn't hear me at all, was walking with her husband and she, she lost it on me, you know, I could hear her yelling, blah, 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 left. It's okay. I know what's coming here. And, and, and in the past I might've like just waved and given somebody like a happy, like have a nice day. I did what I could. Yeah. I'm just going to put that on the shelf. But recently I've been feeling like I need to just stop and sort of understand more mm. at great risk. Right. I mean, you never know. Like I don't expect this woman to plot a gun, but you never know what you're going to get when you choose to have an interaction with someone who's obviously charged. Totally. So we have to like own that. And I, it, I did this with another guy in a ride the other day and that was a whole different story. I won't get into that one. But this woman was like, she was just really upset and she just 
mouth vomits on me, like just energy yeah. vomits all over me. She's like, I'm really upset and you need to be respectful and you just need, and cyclists come past me super fast all the time and blah, blah, blah. And just going and going. And the husband's just standing there. And, and uh, one of the reasons I felt it was okay to stop is because she was with her husband. Right. If she wasn't, she might've been like, whoa, why is this guy stopping? I don't want to add more onto it. Right. So I was kind of aware of that and just listening. I'm not doing it. I'm just, I'm just like hearing receiving and I'm not, this is a weird thing. I don't know if you noticed this, but for me, when someone's really intense energy, sometimes I can't look at them. Yeah. I'm like this and I'm, I'm feeling and I'm listening. Mm -hmm. And then it occurs to me after like 30 seconds, she's going, 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 or that's my perception. Who knows how long the actual time was. Yeah. She's just yelling. And I'm like, I haven't actually looked at her yet. Okay. And then at one point she says, irregardless. And the husband isn't saying anything except he goes, irregardless isn't a word. <laughs> <laughs> he just ninja in this little, little nip, <laughs> yeah. which told me that he had seen this before and, yeah. you know, you'd read all these implications into it. And I, and I just sort of smiled <laughs> and, um, and, and, and I could also tell that he wasn't, he could feel that I wasn't a threat. He, I wasn't yeah. going to like start, you know, trying to punch her or something. Right. Right. And I wasn't super angry and belligerent. So I wasn't there to, to fight with her. And, uh, <laughs> and so I kind of smiled and she keeps going and going and then she, she seals it up. She's like, and you just need to be respectful because I, I'm really anxious and I'm stressed. And I heard all these feelings come out, you know, and I could tell she was really struggling with, and, and then she went on to explain that she used to bike. She used to hike all the time, all over the hills. She used to ski, but now she's old and she's got knee problems and back problems. And all she can do is walk on this trail, but it's really anxiety inducing because cyclists are buzzing her all day. Huh. Right. Huh. And her if I didn't just, what's that? Her past is haunting her. Right. Right. And, and now she's, she feels limited in her present, right? It's like all you can see, she had this sensation that all these choices had been taken from her. Right. Right. Ooh. And I'm, and if I didn't just shut up and listen, I wouldn't have really been able to absorb that. So I'm like listening and I'm, and I'm like, oh man, now I have this empathy for this woman. It's like, wow, yeah. like this, I can see she's really suffering and she's struggling because she feels like her universe is getting smaller. Her active universe is getting smaller. Yeah. And then I'm imagining all my cyclists who are so, all my endurance friends who, and I put myself in this category, who are also addicted to all our happy internal pharmacy that we get when we go riding our bikes all over the hills and, you know, we nature and smiley sun and, and you come home, you're like, Hey, well, I, I shelved all my problems for two hours, but boy, do I feel good. Right. <laughs> so now I can deal with them. And, and then she, so she stopped and then she was like, well, and she started to walk away. And I was like, oh, so you're done now. Did you want to hear what I had to say? Right. Or do, are you just talking and that's it? Cause, and I sort of left it like, I'm cool with whatever, but I just yep. want to, I'm just going to witness this. Right. And she was like, I think cool. she was taken aback by that. And so she let me talk. No doubt. You know, like. People are fascinating when it comes to actually getting out what they feel. And once they once they say it and once they speak it out into the air, it's almost that moment of just like, oh, oh shit, what did I just say? I just revealed the truth. Mm -hmm. Oh, I mm -hmm. feel and where I actually am in the world to this yep. person. I don't even know what do they think of me. And because I think it's so unnatural for us to um, allow ourselves to be vulnerable no matter the moment. Mm -hmm. there's a lot of rhetoric going on in this like no new age somatic healing blah 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 world of things where the people are just like well you know i just don't feel safe 
in mm. this space or I just don't feel safe around this person. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, mm. we have to create this own internal safety inside of us as humans so that no matter what situation we're in, we know that we're okay because there's not a lion running to eat us. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of this concept that we are in such a hyper-protected world and we have such little stress that we actually have to deal with like at an animal nature level of things that would deem us to be unsafe that we have to make up ways to be not safe. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe, or maybe it's that our environments are so insulated that then of course, as your safety window uh, or as your living window becomes smaller, right? We're always 68 to 72 degrees and you know, the light is always just right. And, and we always have enough food in our fridge and in our stomachs and we can nibble all day if we want to, et cetera. Right. Like, like then inevitably the smaller things that actually aren't vital threats become perceived as vital threats. This yep. is why there's such a counterculture of people doing ice baths and saunas and breath work and extreme ridiculous endurance events, right? Which have all their own sets of pros and cons potentially. Yeah. But now we have to like contrive these ways to put ourselves under true threat, right? Whether it's picking up heavy things or yeah, biking ourselves in a sauna for hours on end or whatever yeah. to um, feel like we're, we have, that's the real threat. Now I can go pay my credit card bill and not feel like I'm about to lose my shit right? <laughs> <laughs> or whatever, or, yeah. or have an uncomfortable interaction on a bike path. I mean, that's exactly where this woman was. She was so stressed about walking on a bike path and being passed by cyclists. And what I pointed out to her, well, I didn't even get to point this out to her, but I'm thinking like, okay, your perception is that cyclists are going to hit you, but do you think we are trying to hit pedestrians? Like there's a consequence for that. Right. Right. Like I don't want to hit a pedestrian. This is obviously not a good end to my bike ride. I want to go around to the pedestrians. So do you think I'm trying to like, you may feel threatened by my presence, but if I'm paying, unless something goes horribly wrong, I'm not going to hit you. So yeah. it's, um, and that there is the, um, is a perfect example of levels of consciousness and interactions between them mm-hmm. because she can't think that way. Like mm-hmm. she can't say, well, logically this person isn't actually trying to hit me. All she can think of is she, well, she, since she said it out loud, she's coming from the level of fear. And, and that is this, I'm always like, always on threat, like always on guard, very proactive and very reactive. And, Mm -hmm. and that leads both of you to a certain level of confusion because you can see the truth and you're like, but wait, don't, I whistled and you weren't, um, this doesn't make sense. And And in reality, if we can remember that some people just can't see it and they can't, they can't feel it. And they're also maybe not willing to, uh, Mm -hmm. since we are the more conscious ones, it is our job to be like, well, let me listen, you know, Mm -hmm. you did. And, um, and she just, she might not understand. And that's where we can free ourselves in a lot of ways. And that it brings a lot of challenge to me a lot of times, like freeing myself from knowing that some people just can't understand and they, and they might not ever understand. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause then it leads us, if we can come from the highest level of acceptance and just like, well, you're being you right now. Mm-hmm. Like this 
with being this person and um, I'm going to accept them as they are. And then how do how are we would we accept somebody in our lives as they are? What does that do to us? And what level of freedom does that create? And then also what level of separation does that create? Uh, because there is a reasonable level of I accept you. And if I accept you, then these are my boundaries. Like these are the ways in which I will no longer show up in this dynamic. Yeah. This makes me think of some teachings that I um, did, some teachings, some some classes I took with a, a former mentor, uh, yeah. a guy named Avery. And he talked about the definition of the word integrity, Ooh. right? And if you break it down to the Latin roots, to treat something with integrity or to love something with integrity, integrity in meaning don't. Tegre means touch, don't Ooh. touch. So when you love something with integrity, you don't, you, you, just as you were describing, you sort of look at, accept this person as they are, right? Yeah. This, yeah. this woman who's obviously anxious and fearful walking on a path on a 72 degree day in the sun in Boulder with no guns, no lions, no, no airplanes about to crash on top of her, nothing other than a cyclist. Mm. And, and she's found a way to find that fearful and me having to accept responsibility for the fact that you know, while there's two, there's a relationship there, right? There's subject object right? that goes both ways. So without her, without me on the path, she wouldn't have had that experience, but I wouldn't have had the experience either of us interacting and trying to have this shared recreational experience. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and so on the one hand I did contribute because I was there on a bike and I passed her and I didn't do whatever it was I needed to not upset her. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, she's not managing her anxiety. She's not managing her fear well, and it's spilling over into this experience that then bumps into me. Right. Mm-hmm. And then now I have to manage that. And so that's why I chose to stop and have the discussion. Cause I, as soon as I had that experience, it was like, I need to understand this better. Right. I want to dig deeper and just take a minute to understand it. And I'm really glad I did. Cause then when she let me talk, I just looked at her and I, I looked her right in the eye and I was like, I'm really sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry that I, that I upset you. And I just, that was it. It wasn't a, but, or an, and, and a, but I, I'm not going to hit you or like, I tried not to explain it away and, or justify it. I just told her I was sorry. And I, I think it felt like she really landed for her because she kind of, she calmed a little bit and she was like, okay, okay. And I was like, it's okay. (laughs) Right. Go enjoy your walk. (laughs) But beautiful experience in a way. It's like, because sometimes, um, in some interactions there, there is like, if we are acting out of integrity and acceptance of another person as they are, um, there is just some people can't handle truth. Like some people cannot handle themselves in a particular moment with another person that is mirroring, mirroring back their issues. Mm. Um, and that comes up too. It's the courage to be disliked. It's the, mm. when you get to a certain level of I'm going to tell the truth and I'm going to be in the truth no matter what. There's a lot of people who are really going to be agitated by that. Yeah, for sure. Culture doesn't like truth, real truth. Yeah. It destroys the culture. Yeah. Yeah. Because so much of culture comes from passed down programming, which comes partly from religion, which Mm -hmm. comes 
from people's beliefs and government and, you know, all kinds of things all mishmash together, which would be under the umbrella of the need to govern people, like the need mm. to have a hierarchy. Mm. And um, government does not like the outliers who are over here screaming like, that's not, that's not right. Um, yeah. Excuse me. That's a lie. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's the the stage on the quadrant, right? And then if we're talking about Paul's model, but then there's also the family, the closer right. in, the parents programming us with belief systems, right? We, so, yeah. okay, now I got to rewind and zoom out. Alyssa, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, Alyssa and I just attended Paul's uh, fifth year class. Well, I don't know if it was the fifth year, but it was fifth level. Yeah. Uh, IMS five, it's integrated movement specialist level five in beautiful rainbow, California. And we talked a lot about belief systems and myth during our class. And it was a really powerful experience. And Paul's like, people, people who don't understand exactly what I did, I think I come back and they're like, how was class? Okay. How do I, how do I encapsulate this? Uh -huh. I'm like, uh, learning from Paul's like drinking from a fire hose. He, <laughs> he's read more books than the 13 people in class combined. Yeah. Um, easily for sure. And not just read them, but studied them like yeah. properly read them yeah, and meditated on them and integrated them. And then he's also had more life experiences at extremes than all of us probably combined. Like he was a boxer and a triathlete and a massage therapist and a PT and he was in the army and he built weapon systems for Cobra helicopters, blah, 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 blah. It's like, holy crap, man, this guy's done it all. Yeah. So he has so much to teach, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How it was like, I think my favorite part of our experience together is that he was in class with us. Um, mm -hmm. He was not on the pedestal of I am teacher. Mm -hmm. He was like, oh, shit. Uh, my soul told, tells me that I don't trust God. Um, mm -hmm. Whoops. For <laughs> <laughs> moment. Yeah. I was, oh, thank God. Like, yeah. this is cool. Um, and I You're thought a real that person. Yeah, exactly. Um, we really, I think there, it becomes sort of a habit to pedestalize teachers. And um, even though they are so advanced in many areas, uh, they are in their purpose, just like we are. And, um, and there's a lot of things to admire about him and the Institute and about everything that we have learned. And I, what I love most of all about what we have in our class is we have a whole group of people taking all the systems that we've learned under this particular institution and then everything from our own minds and making it all our own. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's the best part about coming together is realizing that, you know, I was talking to a friend about it this morning. It's like, we are all generally doing something very similar and we kind of all have the same problems and um, <laughs> and we're all dealing with like very similar things in life, like all about holding the tension of the opposites, like all about healing polarity and being able to handle that. And and yet still all of our approaches are so very different. Mm. And I mm. think that's the most beautiful piece of it all, like. Not every piece of information needs to be conveyed the same way because all of us can help people in very different ways. And uh, 
somebody who comes to you would maybe if both of us could figure it out and make it work in the same way, there would be someone who would be like, you know, you really belong over here. And then like, okay, no, you really belong over here. Like there's so many people who are just going to gravitate towards each of us as individuals, because that is the uniqueness of what we have to bring to the world. Yep. Yep. Not to sound all woo, but the law of attraction, right? Yeah, totally. And you know, woo is not a cuss word. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Not in my world. It's not, but for some people it is. I know. And I just wish to fucking like throw a bomb at that because (laughs) it's good. And I think there's also a better word. Like I really like the word magic and Mm. like, and mysticism and the magic of things, because if we look around, it's like when we see everything that's created around us. And even the fact that like, we are in different time zones right now, you and I, and, um, and have completely different scenery out our windows. And yet we're talking and uh, we're kind of together. And mm-hmm. like, I think there's so much magic in that. And when we lose that view of the magic of the world and how much magic goes into each and every day, I think that's when we start to dig our own grave. Mm-hmm. Um, we start, we stop having awe for things and like the power of the things that we don't understand and we can't tangibly feel or see or sense and we lose that because that's the loss of our inner child like that's Mm. the loss of the playful mystic inside of us that we were when we were five right and it's so easy to get so consumed in modern life with the the it's you know the there's a pro and con to everything, right? So you're talking about the magic of the technology, the fact that we can be on video and have a conversation and record it and then send it out to thousands of people. Like that's incredible. But at the same time, unintended consequences of technology have this impact on our lives because, you know, while we're having this conversation, we probably will each get 44 emails or whatever. And then we have to process those emails and respond to them or delete them or junk them or whatever. And so you know, in, in 1901, when someone was like, I'm going to send a letter to my grandpa and they wrote it and then they walked it to the post office and then the postman put it in their horse bag and then rode it across the plains or whatever. I don't know. 1901, 1801, we'll say that. So <laughs> like now, you know, then at some point someone was like, we're going to make this thing called email and we're going to have this thing yeah. called the internet and you'll be able to write someone a letter and it'll get there basically instantly. Won't that be incredible? Well, yeah, that sounds like an amazing idea. But at the same time, if you could only write your grandpa a letter once a quarter at the most, and you knew it was going to take a month to get there, you took a lot more time and care in writing that letter. Now it's like email mouth vomit. Hey, Alyssa, you know, I got to tell you 14 things and half of them are unfinished sentences. And I don't check my own fucking punctuation. And then, you know, and then I'm using the word, you know, incorrect English for half of it. What was the word the guy used on the trail? I forgot already. Ir, uh, irrespective. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so we're using irregardless. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. And <laughs> irregardless of how I speak, how I speak my speak. And, and so now I, instead of having concision and clarity of communication and authentic intent and desire to really say something of value to you using words and written language, 
I just quickly everything out to you. And then it causes you to have to process and then write me back and ask me three questions because you don't understand what I wrote or whatever. And I'm just obviously making up a hypothetical example, but we multiply this times a thousand and we get, we get a person who's walking on a bike path and they're stressed about their life because they have this perception of these meteors coming at them that they have to process and sort. I mean, I think anxiety, anxiety of choice is a real thing in our world. And Bezos has the Bezotron 6,000 has contributed to this. You can't even buy a fucking vacuum cleaner without three hours of research now. Right. Right. I mean, it's not possible. I I mean, it is possible, but man, those bad reviews (laughs) out there. And it is the most common disease of our society today is the disease of endless options. Mm-hmm. And it causes such a certain level of anxiety because of everything that you just mentioned, you know, the self-created anxiety, the self-created stress, and mm-hmm. it's very real at the same time. And therein lies all of us, you know, together. It is, I feel like it is our duty to not forget about the mysticism inside of us, not forget to talk about the mysticism in the world and the magic of because that is how we teach people to remember that it is okay to play and remember that it's okay to be happy and joyful. And it is also as equally okay to be sad and enveloped in anger and, you know, reminders that it feeling the full spectrum of emotions, even on a daily basis is okay. Mm -hmm. And um, we get stuck. I think we get pigeonholed in this realm of being afraid to feel joy because what if we get disappointed? And, you know, if we're just constantly disappointed or constantly just at a certain lull level of not being excited about anything, then we can never be disappointed. But yet we pigeonhole ourselves into then feeling nothing. And uh, and that is why I think it's our job to. Make sure we're doing that for ourselves as peers mm. and as mystics and magical people and whatever other words we want to put with, you know, what we see ourselves as and what we see our role is, is um, to remind ourselves of the magic and to always come back to it and make sure that we are exuding that whenever we can and we're, whenever we're able to. Mm. To remind our clients to dance every once in a while or make art or sing or hum or be goofy or have a tickle fight or Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Um, and our partners and who we come in contact with. Yep. Yep. Keep the play, keep the joy unbound play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's one of Paul's greatest concepts. I mean, okay. So also to further just contextualize this conversation for the audience. Yeah. Like, the maybe the best way to illustrate this is the totem pole, and I'll, I'll ask Joel to put up uh, a, an image of the totem pole for our our YouTube viewers. But um, maybe we can describe it briefly. But it, it basically is kind of like a human body, but it's an artistic version, right? Right. And at the bottom are the slave joints, and then it progresses up through the viscera and the heart, and then at the top is the spirit, right? Mm-hmm. And the concept of this totem pole. I'm describing it very briefly, but the concept is is simple. It's it's hierarchical, meaning often people come to me as a bike fitter or perhaps to you with back pain or knee pain, right? And these are the slave joints. These are sort of the bottom of the totem pole, meaning we can almost always trace that injury to something higher up on the pole as the actual mother of that injury. Right. 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 But Western 
uh, physical therapy or, or the superficial look, we'll say it that way. I won't pick on any geographic region or, or profession in particular humans in general will just tend to look superficially at an injury. It's like, Oh, my knee hurts. Okay. Let's put, um, some ice on my knee and let's take ibuprofen, which will then fix my knee. And then maybe I stretch my knee and then I rub my knee and that, and it's like, we're looking, that's a very biomechanical, acute, localized approach, right? That's the most superficial approach we could take to a knee injury. Now there are instances where that might happen. You're walking around the house and not being present and you bonk your knee on a coffee table, then it hurts. Then that might be appropriate treatment, but we could even then also ask. (laughs) The funny part about the example that you just gave is that the knee problem is the knee problem, but the creator of the problem was the lack of presence. Yes. Thank you. Perfect. <laughs> Which goes to psyche, right? Why aren't you present? Why aren't you paying attention to where your coffee table is? What what are we, what, what are we doing? <laughs> right? Isn't that beautiful? So, um, there's a there's a weird theme in bicycle fitting and in the bike world about the dominant left and how riders tend to crash on their left side, have more left knee pain, left back pain. Not shocking, right? Uh-huh. Um, for a variety of reasons. So, so anyway, that the totem pole is. Paul's it's, it's one of his greatest roadmaps to sort of help us as practitioners work with clients and understand ultimately what the root of the problem is, the mother of the problem is right. And, and he would say that maybe not all, but probably most roads eventually lead to the psyche. Like our belief system, our lens through which we see the world and that coffee table example being one example, it dictates almost everything we do, every outcome in our lives right? Like if you're not paying attention, you're going to walk around and bonk into shit more often. And then you're going to end up with more stub toes and bonked knees and, or you're going to end up in a car accident. Oh, why me? You know, I can't believe I'm in a car accident. I was just trying to go pick up my kid from soccer or whatever. It's like, well, what were you doing? Right. How many, how many things are you trying to juggle because of your belief system that you don't have enough time, that scarcity mindset, or that you are trying to cram too much stuff into your day. You're unrealistic about the number of minutes that we have in our day, which, right. you know, eventually when you start to climb the ladder, you, you begin to be able to expand time, which is a superpower that I've been working on. But, um, you know, until you get to that point, 60 seconds is 60 seconds, right? And we can only fit so much in our day. And then you try to fit too much stuff and then you're late and then you're in a ru- you're in a hurry. And then of course there's construction in your way or too much traffic or this town's too busy. And then boom, car accident. Yep. So that's, that roadmap I think is really useful. And the part I want to add that I think is hopefully contextually significant is that that roadmap was really found built on a foundation of Paul digging into, I'm going to say a bad word now, science, (laughs) right? I mean, uh, and I, and I want to point that out because if people are listening to this and they're like, what is this magical woo stuff they're talking about? It's, like Paul's arc and trajectory is so fascinating as a teacher. And that's why I was so drawn to his work because I'd seen bits of his philosophy that I had sort of figured out in my own experience of the world. And he was on the same, had drawn the same conclusions, but had just of course gone way, way, way farther down the road. So I was like, okay, this is the person I need to learn from. That was fundamentally wise to discover his work. And, and so he has already gone through the forest of science and overturned so many rocks, so right. many stones about anatomy, physiology, energy systems, uh, the science of water, soil science, you know, the, the science of the microbiome, just to name a few right. points, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
that was a lot of words. What do you, what do you think? It's good. You know, like I feel, um, the, uh, what was I thinking? Oh yeah. Science. Uh, you know, science only started getting demonized when people started arguing about it, uh, <laughs> and using it like against people as, uh, you are now a bad person because you don't believe this version of science and realistically like science is not um the truth it is we form a hypothesis and then we do a b and c things to test and see if our hypothesis is true so in reality science has been changing since the beginning of time since we started hypothesizing you know we have Mm -hmm. soy used to be the ultimate health everything until then the same science mm. that proved it healthy also said but wait it mimics estrogen like that might be why all these people have man boobs right um, and you know so it, it's it becomes the classic the world of nutrition and how much information is shoved into that world and it's all science it's all studied it's all this, 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 and this study, and then this person studied this, and then this person had this hypothesis and tested it, and it was true. But this mm. person had this different hypothesis and also tested it. That's the opposite of this one, and this is also true. So what we then know as science is then it is not um, what's the word I want to use um, irrefutable truth. Mm. It is well. When you take that and say, does that apply all or is that just for a day? You know, it's veganism versus carnivore. Um, mm-hmm. It's like, well, is everyone meant to be a vegan? No, mm-hmm. um, no one is meant to be a vegan. That is human. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> however, maybe for a meal, sure. Like maybe for a point in a woman's cycle, maybe. And mm-hmm. then like the same with carnivore. Like carnivore is said to heal all of these diseases. And I have a I have a client who got who went carnivore and he was having this mystery pain and like it all went away mm-hmm. uh, within his first month of being like strict carnivore. And nobody can look at him and tell him, you know, the science says that being vegan is healthier. Mm-hmm. It, it's just a, it would be a lie for him mm-hmm. so we have to take all this information and then say well science is ir- it, it is um, the word that I really want that's just like right here but it's not mm. the but, word I use uh, if I may yeah is I, I think what I'm what I'm looking for that I think goes beyond science are axiomatic truths axioms uh-huh. infallible infallible uh-huh. yes yeah. oh that's an excellent word. Yeah, that's that. That was I like your word too. Um, and so when you so science is is not infallible. Like we can retest and test and take away the influence of the person do the experiment. We can say, well, this science person scientist was not at the level of consciousness to be able to discern the level of truth in his results. We could go that far. Like we could David Hawking's that shit and. Mm-hmm. So there's so many levels that and perspectives that we can look at the world through. And then when we come back to the level of truth, 
And we can say, like using diet as an example, we can say, well, there is a fundamental truth that every single human is born with hydrochloric acid in our stomachs. And hydrochloric acid can burn through concrete. So then we can ask ourselves, well, why would that be there? And the only reason why that would be there and not just a whole bunch of enzymes is because we are meant to break down heavy proteins and fats. And and yes, it's there to also kill off parasites and bacteria and all of that stuff because no, like nobody who has healthy levels of hydrochloric acid in their stomach will have a parasite infection. Um, and like that could be fallible. And I don't think so in this mm. moment. Um, knowing the power, knowing how powerful hydrochloric acid is. Mm-hmm. So knowing that about our physiology, because when we look at our physiology and the way our body is built, we can then say, well, we are not inherently meant to be vegan. And we are also not inherently meant to be vegetarian, um, at least not forever. And uh, maybe as a short stint in time, like doing a dieta, studying with a plant, you know, Mm -hmm. getting to know nature more. Yeah. And our ancestors forever and ever, they were hunting animals. Um, That would have been the most sustainable, easiest source of food for us. And, you know, it's an interesting, um, another David Hawking's thing. He studied conscious, like his studies all is all in consciousness studies. And what he did is the way he did his test was he didn't put, he didn't hypothesize about anything. He just tested. And his stuff is using muscle testing. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't, he just tested everything. And he was like, well, this is the result. And this is the thing. Like no judgment, none of his own opinions, which I think is really neat. And, and definitely says a lot about attachment. Mm-hmm. And he talked about animals. And he said part of the consciousness of an animal spirit is he, they are here to level up. So when we consume an animal, we have allowed the spirit of that animal to level up in consciousness because it is now a part of us. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. Not so. And I'm like, ooh, that is controversial as shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and <laughs> it, but when you hear it, though, and when you're not attached to any of it, and you could just be like, well, wait a second, like at the level of spirit and the level of soul and God, when we look at things from the highest level possible, like, is there truth to that? Like, why else would the animal kingdom itself have an, a hierarchy? Like, there, there is a hierarchy to the animal kingdom, 100%. We observe it all the time. And um, so mm-hmm. it, it was definitely an interesting thought and an interesting thing to look at and and really take that in and be like, okay, well... There's a reason why we pray over our food with at least a prayer of gratitude. Like, thank you for your life. And now I invite you into my life. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I thought that was very, a very fascinating piece of study that he put out there. Mm. That's really interesting. I like what you're saying uh, with the David Hawking stuff for sure. And considering for me, I think about science as being. Uh, a word that Paul actually used in class was a concept I welded together with this. Science is horizontal. 
Mm. And it's, it's really the human intellect trying to categorize and understand the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just sort of marching along in the universe and we're sort of figuring things out like, oh, there's water and asteroids and, you know, oh, there are these new creatures in the bottom of our ocean that we've never met, that we've never met before. We're going to study them. So we're just learning more about the universe. And then because the mind is so young, it's so cleaving and categorizing and, and organizing in order to make sense of the world, this is a natural thing. Like you walk through the forest long enough, eventually you're going to brush up against a poisonous plant and then you're going to know right away, like, don't touch that plant or an animal's going to try to eat you. And if you don't get eaten, you're going to be like, all right, don't hang out with those animals too much, et cetera. Or which ones can I eat? You figure these things out. This is how we survive in nature. So it's a natural process for our intellect. When we went from quadruped to biped and took this huge risk evolutionarily to gamble on our survival strategy, right? We, we exposed our viscera to everyone head on. Hey, do you want to do you want to slice me in the neck or gouge out my heart first? What <laughs> take your choice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. And and oh now I'm on two, I'm on two feet instead of four limbs. I've got way I'm I'm much more at risk of falling over. Fall and break a pelvis or femur, you're dead to the tribe. You're your tiger snack, right? Yep. Or mushroom food. So it's like right. that was big risk. So we have to develop our vestibular system and we have to start to really critically analyze the world and begin to use tools and do all those things, which led to cooking and farming and than all the shit that we have now. Yeah. But when we're the, for me, the, the understanding I have about science is that it's horizontal and it's a subset of the true experience of life. Ooh, it's really nice. You should write that down somewhere. <laughs> okay, I will. And <laughs> thank you. And so it's a subset of the nature. And I had a really interesting discussion with a colleague recently, a coach. Yeah. And he was making the case that science he had this thought experiment mm. and he was making the case that science is the altar that we should worship basically. And I found mm. this to be a really fascinating discussion because it really helped me iron out the concepts and how I view things in my world. Yeah. And what he was saying is, okay, imagine a coach who could read a hypothetical coach who could read every piece of scientific literature written about. We'll just, we'll just narrow it down to endurance sports for the sake of the discussion about endurance sports. So, you know, about metabolism and energy systems and, you know, um, dose response relationship and, you know, different types of training load and strength training within endurance sports and all the things you can imagine that would fit in that category of stuff. And that this hypothetical coach was a supercomputer brain type person, and they could read every study ever written, and they could also reference them and, you know, understand them all contextually. Mm-hmm. And his point was, this would be the perfect coach. This would be, and he also used the word omniscient, Ooh. right? Okay. That's yeah. exactly what I thought. Ooh. <laughs> huh? And I was like, well, in my model, that doesn't make sense at all because science is a subset of what we actually truly know and understand. Right. right. And just as you pointed out with your example of, you know, veganism versus carnivore, your, your carnivore client could go read a 15 studies or 30, 59 studies, whatever, about how veganism is the healthiest, blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. But his or her experience will be like, well, no, because I was... I don't know if your client was vegan, but we'll pretend they were. And then they switched to carnivore and whoosh, mystery pains go away, right? So their experience, at least presently, is, well, that's invalid for me. That doesn't apply to me. And I think the N of one, the individuality, bio-individuality of each of us is one of the biggest problems with science. Science tends mm-hmm. to, by definition, most experiments try to generalize. You know, yeah. if we put footbeds in your cycling shoes, do you go faster or not? Well, 
okay, we can take 100 people if we've actually found 100 people to do this study. And maybe we still missed the nine that we needed to get a clearer result, right? Right. So <laughs> this is... fascinating in the way of like, I think about, um, I just, I did a podcast recently and I called, I called it the Hoka Hoax. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. I, where do I start on the fucking Hokas? I know. <laughs> and, uh, and there's science behind those, you know, they have, mm. they have studied and researched, they've got a team, all those things. And, but the thing about it is, is like, although that is so far outside our general physiology, um, it's also so far outside our physiology to run a hundred miles all in one shot. Um, yes. People do it anyways and call themselves, you know, awesome for it. Right. And, uh, so there's a lot of things. It's the paradox of humanity that is happening today. Like there, we are living paradoxes. Like it's not healthy to be inside all day, yet these are our shelter. And this is, you know, a nice place to, you know, set up our lives. And then it's really comfortable inside. And then we've built these cities. And, and so it, it's kind of hard to be outside. It's hard to walk everywhere. It's hard to bike everywhere. Like, so, so we've created a living paradox of a world where now where people like you and I are like, okay, so how do we utilize all of the things that we have created that have made life really convenient and really comfortable in such a healthy way where now I can go sauna, ice bath, you know, jump in a cold spring and eat all the organic food and create this lovely centering of industrialized humanity mm. because we can't just delete it all. You know, I've thought about getting a flip phone many times over again. Like, but no, like I, I like being able to use my phone to FaceTime clients. Like that is so cool. Like mm -hmm. I like being able to have pictures and look something up. Like, so there's the gratitude for the convenience of the industrialization that we've created along with bringing nature into it. So that is the same as the balance of science with intuition, um, with individualization, individualization of everything. And, you know, like not every, like every single person who sees any practitioner, no matter what, in my opinion, should learn how to squat properly. Mm. Now, depending on that person's body and that person's physiology, and whether they've got rods in their spine, whether they've got knee replacements, like whatever might be going on, whether they have a spondy, whether it, whatever it might be, they every person will need to learn the squat differently. Mm -hmm. So it's all science, and science means that we don't stop. We don't stop asking why. Like part of science is, I feel like a never-ending hypothesis. It's like, well, okay, mm -hmm. we can that answer, but why? Um, it's like, sure, veganism might be okay, but why, you know, like, does that person not have a gallbladder and have they been their entire life? So now they have zero hydrochloric acid in their stomach. Right. Um, we can easily put them on digestive enzymes. So sure. Maybe that person would need to be a vegan for a little while. Like the person cannot digest meat. So maybe when that would apply and it's the, um, I think it's part of our nature as holistic practitioners. Like 
we are the masters of being holistic. And that means constantly asking why. Mm-hmm. Like, why, why? Like, why is that happening? And it, co- it ties back to like the, the nature of being curious. And um, we have to continue to be curious all the time, no matter what. And I think when we stop being curious, we lose that, like to tie back in the concept of the totem pole, we lose the totem pole and we just start focusing on the slave joints. We just start focusing on the extremities and the muscles. And then we lose the holicism of it all and we stop being able to effectively help people. Mm-hmm. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. It's um, the parallel to that in the science world is when you become dogmatic. I mean, I think the issue psychologically or speaking from the perspective of psyche is our is comes back again to our exposure to so much knowledge and so much information and the disagreement yeah. of experts, right? Like right. one of our, our teachers and mentors, Matt Walden did a podcast for a while. He called it, um, what did he call it? It was, it was about the tension of being lost in the modern world. I can't remember the title of it at the moment, actually, because he stopped doing it after a while, which I was bummed out about because it was great. Mm-hmm. But he was talking about, uh, it was ordered order from chaos, something like that. And the idea yeah. is that we have so much information and we get lost. And this, this happens to me all the time. I have clients who come to me and they're just in a tailspin because they, you know, their knee hurts or they don't know what to do about a given topic, whether it's whether to eat vegan or carnivore or how many intervals to do, or whether or not they should do a hundred mile race or 50 mile race or, or whatever they're trying to figure out what kind of water filter they should buy. Right. Right. And they go consult Dr. Google or Dr. Amazon and two of the, two of the worst doctors you can consult and they get conflicting views. And, and this is true in my experience, this is true of any topic. We can pick the most sacred cow and mm-hmm. slice it in half. It doesn't matter what the cow is made of. Yep. Uh, tick, pick the biggest topics you want to, the most controversial vaccines being an obvious one that comes to mind, right? We can find bona fide experts like PhD or higher level education on either side who will battle each other to the naked death Mm -hmm. and eat each other's eyeballs out with their teeth to stand on their pillar of correctness. Right. And so what does a person who just has a nine to five job and wants to know what the best choice for their health is do? This is a real challenge. And, and uh, so I think part of the outcome of the worship of the altar of science is that people are really uh, stressed. They're really feeling fearful or lost in yeah. this world of over-information and over-choice and also polarity and disagreement, right? This dichotomy we have, even yeah. at the highest level of information. And then, and like Paul said on the pod recently, he's like, you know, the internet's a great thing because somebody farts in Africa and you can hear about it five minutes later. And he's right. And at the same time, he's pointing out that it, it causes this real rift in our psyche. Yeah. Because people feel they're looking externally for expertise or guidance, but they right. can't find it. They get lost and they get in a tailspin. And so one of our greatest messages, they, they become derailed uh, and worship the altar of science because they want simplicity. Yeah. They crave an answer. I just want to fucking know, like, should I get vaccinated or not? And then they just find a scientific trail and they go, science is all in. And then they put a sign in their yard. I don't know if you have this. You're in Austin, right? We have these signs. Science is real. People post those in our neighborhood. I'm like, oh man, okay, cool. And, and so they worship, they, they just go down that hole because it's something to follow and they perceive it to be concrete, but really this is just a crisis of information. I mean, someone in 1901 
it would have taken them their entire lives to learn as much as you and I could learn on our phones in 24 hours if we wanted to sit and stare at our phones and read on any topic. In 20 minutes, you could probably, which is like, which is the insane part. It's Mm -hmm. the, and I think it's where uh, the true coming back to our intuition comes into play because that is what helps us discern through all this information that's out there. Like, that's how people used to make medicines. They used to commune with the plants. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I think that there was of course, like no doubt some trial and error involved, i.e. like, you know, historical science, um, like that very, and now they're dead. Like that. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Bad science. Um, and yeah, science. Um, (laughs) Here's this vaccine. What? See what happens. Um, mm. <laughs> oh shit! Now you're having a heart attack. Whoops. Um, so and and then it's also and then it's coming back to our intuition, like it's coming back to our own internal voice and being able to be like, okay, so I have this decision to make, and and I'm holding, you know, I'm in this tension of opposites, and the only thing that gets us through that tension of opposites is to commune with our internal voice, like our true connection with it all of like, what is going to be the best thing to do in that moment, like in the intention of the highest good, like, what is this direction to take? Um, I think a lot of us felt it at the beginning of COVID, like, when when all of that stuff was going on, and then one news was yelling this, and the other news was yelling this, and your family's yelling this, and all people are freaking out. Like, all you have to do is you go in and you're like, okay, is this actually something I need to be concerned about? Like, is this, is this truly something like, I don't know what happened with you during that, but like, I had a moment where I was going to see a client and I just got off the phone with my dad who was hysterical and, you know, people losing their minds. And I'm just like, is this really something I need to be concerned with? Like, do I need to really pay attention? And my, and my body was like, no, you're, you're, you're just going to keep doing you. I'm like, cool. Mm-hmm. I'm good. Done. Yeah. And then you trust. And, and I think that is a missing art. It, mm-hmm. it truly is something that people have put under the umbrella to come full circle under woo. Mm-hmm. And it deemed it to be, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, and that's the gift of it is it's not supposed to make sense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, it's there's a parallel in endurance sports right now specifically in cycling with power meters. Yeah. Right? And I just had this discussion with one of my coaches this morning because I'm sort of my philosophy of coaching is like really it's the the same model but transferred onto what happens when you ride your bike. Yeah. Do you externalize your power and look at your power meter and stare and have a coach tell you ride at 200 Watts for four hours all day long, no matter what, doesn't matter if your heart rate's through the roof. Doesn't matter if you bonk, doesn't matter if you, uh, have to pee, you know, whatever, if there's a headwind, if you get hailed on, none of that matters. You're only a good little boy or girl. If you ride at 200 Watts for four hours. And if you do anything less than that, then your, your workout was a failure Yeah, and they externalize, they don't, they they, they externalize their power in the sense that they're, they're worshiping this number and they perceive that that's the only way they're going to get better. As opposed to when I grew up as a junior, we didn't have power meters. So 
You just okay. felt like, oh, how do you feel today? I felt mm-hmm. terrible. I felt like I was dragging a dead horse behind me uh, or sorry, a pile of rocks. That's a better example. And, <laughs> or we had, you know, when you had a good day, it was a no chain day. Like you couldn't feel any gear, no matter what you were just floating on the bike and you could go as fast as you want. And most days, of course, we're in between those two extremes, but you learn to develop your, your relationship with your sport based on how you felt, but looking inwards and that cultivated an awareness of how you practice sport. And it also enabled you to make decisions, authentic decisions by consulting, as you said, communing with the internal voice decisions about what should I do today in training? I, I was going to ride up this giant mountain and go fast, but really feel like crap. You know, I'm, I'm empty. My legs are empty or like, I just don't feel motivated today or I don't know. I'm just spacey today. Like, and listen to that. And, and then you can ask questions like, well, was it because I forgot to eat breakfast (laughs) or am I not hydrated enough? Or did I do all the right things? And I still am dragging this bag of rocks behind me. So I'm going to turn around and take a nap and, and, but people don't, they're externalizing their power. It's the same thing. They just want to be told what to do, which is really a way to bypass your adult responsibility for making decisions ultimately. Right. Uh It's like, I don't know what to do. Alyssa, I want to hire you to tell me what to do. Will you just go to the gym and tell me, pick up that kettlebell, do those crunches Uh and get on that Smith machine. Uh Uh-huh. And, um, should I buy the Hoka's or should I buy the Asics? (laughs) Yeah. You just tell me what size do I get? Uh (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's uh, it's why I made the I raise adult thing, you know, <laughs> it's truly, you know, in the process of helping people heal, like there is that partnership of like, okay, these are the things that are going to be like, this is, since this is my area of expertise per se, like, this is what I would recommend to you. And now it is your responsibility to follow through with doing the homework and with doing, you know, your diet log and and all of the details it's um it's truly the balance of being like a healer and and i what would what we call that i don't know client part like a partnership in a way of like i have this information that you need to make this better and now in return i need you to be responsible to implement this particular program um in this amount of time and do Mm -hmm. these things so it's that mutual responsibility. It's it is the balance of the masculine and the feminine. I have to plug you in, um, okay. and uh, it's the balance between the feminine and the masculine. I think like I, it is why we need each other in partnership because as women we go through we go through what some people go through on a yearly basis on a weekly basis like. We have these moments where we want to climb mountains and our bodies are like, let's go, like, let's create, let's do, we've got all this energy, like we've got to go create something with it. And then we also have this like, oh, I don't really want to do anything today. Like, kind of tired. I'm kind of at zero, you know, I'm cool. And I would go lay on the ground over there for a few hours. Like, and we have societally gotten too far away from that and then we as women because of the competition to be like men um have gotten too far away from our femininity so we as the uh professional intuitors of society of culture have 
become so lost and so disconnected from ourselves that we have become misplaced. Like that the art of intuition is supposed to be taught by women. Um, I feel like that's part of our role to be able to commune and be like, you know, there's this certain thing happening right now. And I feel like this direction might be the best way to go. And then we look at our, we look at the man and they're like, you know, what do you see? Like, what is your, what's your judgment of that? Like, is that safe? You know, like to sense in with what you guys are innately meant for is like that protection and that safety element. And, and it's that dance. And although we have all of that inside of us as individuals, we do have that proclivity to um, dance really well with the opposite gender. And um, it's become lost. And I feel like that's why there's so many people that are so lost within themselves because we had become so very disconnected from our own nature. Yeah. That's a really good point, that interplay between women's intuition and men's protection, role for protection, right? Uh, you know, if we're living in the society that we can all, I think we could probably all recognize how masculine it is, how dominated by male energy it is right now and how women have been in many ways subjugated. You think about what that does to the intuition of like, if women are playing the intuitive role, the dominant, dominantly intuitive role in our society and the partnerships that we have between men and women, whatever form that is, whether it's brother, sister, husband, wife, you know, friends, uh, colleagues in a workplace. Yeah. Um, men being tapped into that women's intuition and trusting it yeah. and not, not, uh, downplaying it or diminishing it or, um, shoving it aside as, you know, crazy or whatever negative adjective you want to apply to it, like actually honoring it and, right. and taking it as useful guidance for your compass and then applying your layer of discernment, which is, as you put it, like, is it safe? Right. right. If we make this life path decision together, if you're with a partner and you're deciding to move or whatever, like, will I be able to protect my family and right. nourish them? Yep. Right. Provide yep. for them, feed them. Like then, then that's the, the man's job and layer. And the woman's layer is the intuition. Like, mm, this doesn't feel right. And maybe they can't always explain. I mean, this is the dance. This is why men and women work so well together because men are all about the sword and young and making decisions and cleaving like, well, but, um, you know, we have to move here to this house because of this money and this rent or this location or whatever driving to work. And she's like, yeah, but I can't walk the dog in the neighborhood because of the, you know, cocaine problem or not cocaine, the meth problem, <laughs> whatever's going on in the, in the neighborhood. Like, how am I ever going to walk the dog? Are you going to walk the dog with me every day? And he's like, you know, crazy talk, blah, 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 you know, busy stormy ocean, go handle that. That's him not honoring her wisdom in that respect. And I'm not saying it's a simple, that this is why it's a dance. Dances are not simple. They're intricate. They're complex. They're so su subtleties to them. Right. Yeah. And most of the time the man leads the dance, but every once in a while he has to respect the fact that she knows where things are going. Right. right? It's really not fair. I mean, you guys, you gals have 30% more fibers in your corpus callosum. Right. Uh -huh. like, Especially when we're bleeding, we have yeah. the, strongest connection between right and left brain hemispheres. So oh, I didn't know that. Uh-huh. So we have a, we, during that time, we are more able than any other time of the month to connect our, what we know to what we feel and hmm. being able to communicate that. So hmm. it's why, um, 
most people now, are they hormonally balanced? Like there's all the details to that, but it, it's why most women get deemed as crazy when they're bleeding because we've got all these feelings that have been unexpressed. And then we finally have the words for them. And then we finally have the time in our body because we now have no hormones in our system. So our testosterone that has been allowing us to kind of push away our feelings and move them away and sleep them away or whatever we're, we may be able to do during that time. They're all now right here. So we're like, oh, like I need all these things. And then no one wants to listen. And um, there is that. Just can't handle it. Right, right. There's the, there's the taking personal responsibility piece on the woman's side. However, mm-hmm. for generations, women have been deemed to be crazy in the negative way because of how we act during the time of the month or right before that. And there really is like that lack of nurturing of what we need during that time and how much we need to be able to express ourselves in such a way and be heard and also acknowledged of like, oh, that's a real thing for you. And what do you need? And I think there's a lot of lack of honoring of that. And really just a lack of honoring of our innate role in society and how it looks to be truly feminine and be able to present something in such a way of like, this is what I feel. And, and I feel like if we go this direction and you do this and you step left and then I step right. And then, and then we swerve a little bit, then we'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And the man's like, well, that doesn't make sense. Feelings don't make sense to me. And um, that's illogical. Mm-hmm. And, and then brushes it off. And historically, like that is, that is, a, is a pattern that's been up for a very long time between men and women. And I think it's why we have started to lean towards becoming very testosterone dominant, like very masculine in nature. And then to counterbalance that men have been feminized. Mm-hmm. Um, so many men have too much estrogen in their systems and not enough testosterone. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, Which can be from a variety of different modern modern outcomes, right? So, okay, so that's a really interesting point you talk about during uh, during a woman's period when they're actually bleeding, they're, they're more switched on and they have greater access to both those, we'll say hemispheres or um, pools of information, right? And, and normally we conceive of the tension of the opposites there in the sense that thinking and feeling are, are somewhat polar, they're, they're a polarization, right? They're a dichotomy. Okay. So if you're really, really feeling, it's quite difficult for someone to also be thinking. Yep. Or maybe impossible and depending on probably the situation. And and likewise, when you're really, really thinking, you're really like analytical brain, you're in the middle of doing your spreadsheet of tax returns or whatever you're doing. Mm. Man, it's that's why you sit at your desk and you you stare at Microsoft Excel, literally the ultimate thinking machine, and you forget <laughs> to use the bathroom for four hours. So you're like, get up and you're like, oh my God, my legs asleep, and I've had to pee for so long, <laughs> and my blood sugar's like four. And I can't do anything. I got to, you know, pee and eat and pass out because I haven't listened to my body. I haven't felt anything in my body for so long. So, so, okay. A couple of follow-up questions then while we're on that topic for you. One is like, what happens when we give women birth control pills then? How, what kind of, what kind of jumbled mess do we get out of that? And then the second would be, how do you feel about copper IUDs? So. Birth control pills first. Yes. Uh, 
So what happens when we're on birth control is we don't ovulate. And so it stops the ovulation completely, meaning we it puts a halt to our entire cycle. So it's it's actually very masculine as I masculinized. Well, that's the wrong word. <laughs> Not a word. Um, Irregardless. You know, we, we stop having our normal hormonal fluctuations and and so it, it messes everything up in the most simple terms because we stop having those weekly cycles. So then it we become very much like men because you guys have this 24-hour rhythm. Your testosterone comes up and then it comes down and then it comes up and, and then it comes down. And so we then, it kind of levels everything out, making us very estrogen dominant. And I think that causes a certain level of aggression because estrogen is the aggressive hormone, not testosterone. Testosterone is the motivation hormone. Um, So we get very aggressive and very bipolar-esque because we are so outside of our actual nature of things. And and it doesn't really, it doesn't generally fix anything. It just puts us very linear. So I think it leaves us very detached from our own internal nature and our own emotional state. Uh, I was on the Nuva ring for two years, uh, like early twenties. And, um, and so with the Nuva ring, you would take it out in order to bleed, except when you bleed, when you're on birth control, it's not an actual period because you never ovulated. So it's kind of just like the body having a little release and then you, and then you put it back in. And every time I would take the Nuva ring out, I would have these insane, unexplainable mood swings. Like I would just lose my shit and then like come to and like, like, oh, what just happened? Like, where did I go? Um, It was, it was really quite crazy. Uh, So it kind of, it's very disconnected. And copper IUD, although it's non-hormonal, you have an object in your uterus. And I haven't studied the copper IUD specifically enough to actually give some like empirical evidence as to what it does to our body and our physiology. But like you have metal in your uterus. Metal in your body. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's not, that's not a thing that we would ever happen in nature, right? You don't. There's no tribal society or outcome where you would have metal in your body unless something went really, really weirdly. You like fell into a cave and landed on top of a piece of copper. Like yeah. it just doesn't happen, right? No, it, it sounds it would be awful. Mm-hmm. So there are such things as herbal birth control, um, mm. of cycle tracking, and you know, with certain exceptional outliers, a woman can get pregnant about five days out of the month. And uh, in order for women to really know themselves, I think it's really good for them to know where they are in their cycle. And some women don't know what being in luteal phase is. And those are the about a week and a half, two weeks ish before you're about to bleed. Mm-hmm. And, and they have no idea what the difference is between their different weeks and, and how to eat and what to do for exercise and the more disconnected we are as women from our own bodies, the more disconnected we are from being able to do our job in society as a woman. And therein lies why our earth is on fire currently. Mm, mm, mm. 
that was a big jump, but I totally followed it. Um, <laughs> okay. So would you mind everything, you know, like yeah, for, of course. for decades, like women have been um, spoken down to and that also have chosen the responsibility, their own responsibility is that they have disconnected from themselves in so many ways and have gone along with the ride of becoming very masculine. And uh, it's, there is a reason why we are currently observing the destruction of Mother Earth, like the highest level feminine. And we as women have been destroying our bodies for decades, hundreds of years. Who knows? Yeah. Or putting worship a false idol, like putting fake boobs or fake whatever parts oh, in oh. to yeah. Yeah. try to appeal to some external beauty standard, some... Right, right. Mm -hmm. Whatever name your your bikini magazine, yeah, anorexic standard, yeah. standard of beauty. Yeah, would you mind breaking down kind of how you view the woman's cycle monthly in terms of uh, let's let's use a hypothetical endurance athlete as an example. How would their fueling strategies change? How would their training strategies change from your from your eyes? Such a good question. It's such a question that I wish my coaches knew the answer to back in the day. Mm -hmm. And that I knew the answer to when I was doing my marathon training, like I come to like a 22 mile run and like, I had just started bleeding that morning and my uterus was like, <laughs> guess it's time to run. Uh, <laughs> ignoring that. Right. And it's amazing the pain that we can run through because like some of my, um, like I, I did 22, 24, whatever mile runs when the first four miles, my uterus was screaming at me. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's terrible. Like what we are willing to ignore to keep moving forward. Uh, so we start off. So the first part of our cycle is menstruation. And so while we're bleeding, it's most ideal for us to be resting. And, um, we generally don't want to consume a whole lot of food during this time. This isn't a really great time to be snacky in any way because our body is already doing so much work because not only are we shedding our uterine lining, we're also getting rid of toxins during that time. So we do have this really amazing built in detoxification that happens as women every single month. Like our liver plays a huge role in our cycle. And so depending on how clean our liver is, is really how clean our cycle will be. <laughs> and um, your bleed will tell you everything. Uh, it is your report card for how you treated yourself your prior month. So if we, you know, we're mentally out of balance, if we worked too much or didn't work enough or are holding on to emotions or living outside of our purpose or whatever it might be your period is going to tell you all about it. So hmm. what, you know, depending on how many cramps, like we should not have cramps as women. Like we have, I think I'm saying the word correctly, it's called prostaglandins. And so we have two types of prostaglandins, like, and they cause contractions. And we have, we have one that creates contraction. And then we have one that soothes the contractions. Hmm. So when those become out of balance, that's when we will then be put down per se by contractions of our uterus, because no matter what we, our uterus has to contract in order to shed the lining. 
And uh, we also should not be in roaring pain during that time either because it's such a natural bodily process. Uh. So the most common thing that I found personally in my life that if I have been mentally, emotionally out of balance, like if I'm living too far outside myself and haven't been paying enough attention to my own internal world, I will be put down. Uh, like I will have a day where my ears feel like, no, you're going to sit. Um, you're going to look at yourself. It's cool. Hmm. Maybe you don't want to, but we're going to force you to. Uh, this is and- really interesting. It makes me think about Paul talking about how people get sick to take a time out of their lives because their lives are too, but women have that cycle built in, whereas men, we don't. So we probably get the flu more often or whatever, right? If yeah. if we're living outside ourselves, we're living outside of balance, right? Exactly. Exactly. prostate problems. Yeah. Function. Yep. Uh, because, you know, nature knows the best way to take away a man's manhood is by making his penis not stand up when he wants it to. You got uh, it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. It's a pressure. It's a too much pressure, not enough flow issue. And um, same with women, though, same with our cycle. When we have too intensive a cycle, it's a too much pressure, not enough flow. And mm. so both sexes, we we both have our report cards. It's just men's come a lot later. Like, it's the real analogy. I think it's Paul who said, like, men are like pickup trucks and women are like Ferraris. Um, you can throw a bunch of shit in the back of a pickup truck and it'll keep running for a really long time. And uh, for a Ferrari, you put the wrong gas in and it'll like, you know, stall out on you within minutes. Yep. So for women, yep. like you have a much more intricate physiology because we're meant to carry more than one life. Um, so, yeah, our cycle, our bleed is our report card. And if we continue to push ourselves throughout our cycle, like too much working out, too much food, um, too much caffeine, too much work, whatever it might be, um, we will find ourselves quickly exhausted and drained. And it will Im- create an imbalance in our hormones, consequently, in the next month or after our bleed. Mm-hmm. And it's the thing that I find the most challenge in getting away from. And I think it's so many other women's challenge, like even being in a field where I create my own schedule, I I don't know how to not work during that time. Um there's so many days where my bleed has started on a day where I have six sessions. And I'm like, mm-hmm. right. Oh, this is going to be a fun day. Mm-hmm. Um, because right. that is the introspective time. And although it's possible to work while we are bleeding, it's also, we want to like the way I have found balance in that is knowing that I don't have to be the same person that I was while I was ovulating. Like, while I'm bleeding, I am kind of, I really want to be slow. And so like, I'm probably not going to be in the gym with my clients that day. Like I'm probably going to be like doing some lymphatic work on them or, you know, just having a nice chill conversation of whatever they need to work on. Like I don't have the same level of patience and I also don't have the same level of energy in order to be like, my usual upbeat self, because that is my introspective time. Like my, bo- our bodies are calling us to look inwards. Mm. So that's, I think the general encompassment of like the best thing to do while we're bleeding, like it's a good time to stretch and to, you know, do as little as possible, whatever our body's asking for. Like generally after the first three days, 
we kind of start to get a little bit more of our energy back. And that's a personal thing that changes from woman to woman. Mm. Uh, then you go into your follicular phase. So, so right after a bleed, we start to get a little bit more energy. So we can think of that as springtime. Uh, Bonnie mm-hmm. starting to come alive again. We want to start coming up with new ideas. And our energy is starting to come up. So that means our appetite is coming up too. Our metabolism is getting a, bit, a little bit faster again. And for we want to start thinking about like new ideas. Like this is a time to start creating like, okay, what do I want this month to look like? You know, what do I need to accomplish? And what are my plans? And we can cut, become a little bit more linear during this time because we're thinking about direction. Like we're thinking mm-hmm. about planting our seeds to start putting our creations out into the world. Uh, so we can exercise more this in relationship to endurance sports. So like running or cycling, this is a time where you can start ramping that back up again. Like while we're bleeding, it's not a great idea to go out for your high intensity interval training. Like that's your three mile, two mile trot along, you know, depending on how, how fit you are. Like if you're a serious endurance athlete, three miles is a walk in the park. And although that is not a rest day, there's no such thing to our body as an easy three-mile run Mm. uh, because we're still putting load on our system. It's still, we can dial it way back and we can say, okay, I can go for a two-mile run. I can walk and run and just like be very chill and be very compassionate with ourselves. Mm. And uh, during follicular phase, we can start ramping things back up again. So we can start doing bits of interval training. We can start going back into like the, as you feel like right on, on the edge sort of training. And that's a really good time for that because our hormones are back again. Like mm. they're building up to it. And mm. especially as we get closer to ovulation, this is where we can lift heavy weights. This is where we can do things quickly. Like we've got some testosterone on board. So our tissues are very malleable. Like we can do a lot during ovulation and it's a really great time to be social and to get a lot of our work done that we wouldn't necessarily want to do at any other time of the month. Uh, so this is when we want to take our, like, you know, this part of the tiny part of the mesocycle of our training regimen. And we say, okay, this is when I've got the energy to work really hard. And so I might alternate some hard days with some lifting days and a good amount of stretching to make sure my body stays stable. And um, then as we're going into luteal phase, luteal phase is our longest phase. And the first half of luteal, we're kind of, we're starting to like see a bit of a slowdown in our body, but our energy isn't crashing yet. Like our metabolism is still sustaining us enough to where we can still work out at a reasonable level and we want to start planning for our downswing. So this is when fart lakes would probably be really good. So like some speed plate training, like three mm-hmm. minutes hard, three minutes easy, just start like kind of playing with how we're feeling. So we can really go into that with no expectation of ourselves. Like it's a good time to not have uh, astronomical goals. Like it's like, well, your 22 mile run goal time, whatever it might be, if you want to hit that during ovulation and then you want to start ramping down, but still encouraging your body to build muscle and hold on to your endurance during luteal phase, especially during the first half. Mm-hmm. And then the second half is when our body is really starting to become softer. And we want to start thinking more of like 
dialing it back in. So these are when we're going to do our slow long runs. And we're not trying to do our races during that time. Like we're trying to like be like, okay, well, what did my month look like as a whole? What did I accomplish? How did I feel? And how can I start tying everything together to get ready for winter time? So that's, I think, the end yeah. overview. Yeah. yeah. So then what, I mean, when a woman is an endurance athlete and they go so deep and they're training so much that they don't ovulate, they don't have periods at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's- and that cycle just flattens. I mean, what are the implications there? Right there. I mean, just to reflect on what you said, like we have so much opportunity for a woman and also men, if you're, if you stop listening at this point, I'm going to slap you because you probably <laughs> share your life with several important women, whether they're your wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend, colleague, et cetera. Like having an understanding into the cycle. And especially if you're a coach and you're coaching a woman, it's like, uh, you know, this might be an uncomfortable conversation for some people. I recognize that. Like we have to acknowledge that. Right. I mean, uh, like obviously for us, it's, it's a thing that we're talking about and we're comfortable with it. But so if you're a coach or if you're an athlete and you're listening to this, you're like, "Mm, how do I have this conversation with my coach? Right. Or how do I have this conversation with my client? It's like, we just have to put one foot forward and be brave. I mean, that's my perspective on it. Like, be honest, like talk, we're, we're here to just, disc- this is 2023, you know, this isn't 1974 where people are like, oh, we don't talk about that. Um, right. like, you know, someone farts in Africa and we know about it. So we can talk about women menstruating, but if as men, we understand the rhythm of this cycle, I mean, think about how much more compassion you can have for your wife when she's like, holy crap, I can't get off the couch today. It's like, okay. Where are you in your cycle and what's going on and how do I support that? Or how do I just let you be and do your thing? Maybe that's the answer. Like it's, uh, but also like, okay, cool. Now she's in the phase of her monthly cycle where she's going to be training more and training harder and should be training harder for her event. How do I hold space for that? Or how do I support that? Or if we're going for a ride or a run together, then I know that we're going to have these type of characteristics. And if you're a woman and you understand that cycle, like, how can you ride that wave to your own success? How, yeah. like how much more are you going to amplify the good effects of your training and how are you not going to be swimming uphill at the wrong time of the month, trying to do something that really doesn't match the rhythm of the cycle. Right. Right. And yeah, sorry, one more, like what happens if your race is on, you know, day five of your cycle or day one, Read my mind. what do we do um, with that? <laughs> I was about to go there. I okay, cool. Bye. Because we don't want to pigeonhole ourselves so deeply in anything to where we are so attached to, it's the first day of my bleed, I'm not allowed to be doing anything. Um, And this is where it kind of gets a little um, uh, dancey per se, because like I've had plenty races where I've raced on the first day of my cycle because that was the day that was the day of the race. I had no control over that day. And I've had many times where I have traveled on the first day of my cycle where I would never have planned that trip on that day, but I just so happened to have bled thir- three days early, you know? And so we don't want to get so caught up in how uh, it's kind of like the 80 20 rule of things. And sometimes things are truly out of our control. And If we are prepared enough and if our body is well-trained enough and we've been treating ourselves really well, 
we're going to be fine with pulling out a race on day one of our cycle. Like we've been training for it. Your body's already there for it. And we can handle, you know, a loop being thrown at us every so often and be okay. And herein lies the paradox mm. of society and of competition. Because ultimately, why are we competing? Like, why are we racing? Uh, to prove something like we are in, we are doing something that is very masculine like we are trying to win we are trying to compete we are competing with the time we're competing with other people mm-hmm. so there is that element of like well we signed up for this masculine task like we mm. did ask for that so it's the paradox of sports it's the paradox of women in sports like we cannot always have control over when our races are and we can't always race when we're ovulating, even though that would be really awesome. Uh, so it is creating the balance. Like all hell is it going to break loose in our body if we race on the first day of our period. And if we've been taking care of ourselves well enough for the past two months, three months, four months, whatever it might be, then our body's going to be fine and we're going to do great. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's just something that we've signed up for. Like we've signed up for something that is going to eventually come in the way of our physiology of what our meant in our women's cycle. It, it, because right. it's a, like, that's what I'm, how I'm seeing it is like, you, you said it perfectly. It's a masculine thing. It's a, it's a competition. It's a race. You're the racing time or racing other people. So yeah. inevitably that will, if we choose to bring that into our lives, inevitably it's going to have a direct conflict with the natural rhythm of being a woman. Like right. it has to, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. negotiating that and deciding and having that experience on race day and then going that maybe you're like, that was terrible. I never want to do that again. I don't need to run anymore because if I, or maybe you decide like, I still love running and I want to do it. I'm just hypothesizing. But the next time I sign up for a marathon, if I wake up that morning and I start bleeding, I won't start the race. I'll just wait till the next marathon. Maybe that's your choice. I don't know. Or bike race, whatever, but yeah, uh, whatever my be. Yeah, um, it's truly finding the middle in the life that we are choosing to live. Mm. Um, you know, I know that like I don't do endurance running anymore. Uh, it was killing me. I like the last race that I did was Boston and I peed blood afterwards. Like I was exhausted. Mm. Uh, but it's it, that and that's just my own stories because like it became so ingrained as my in into my identity that I had to do it. And it was like, I am good at it. So it just kept feeding into that continuous masculine nature of like, well, I'm good at this. So I have to keep going and I'm really good at this. So, so I must keep going and, and people see me when I do this. So then I must keep proving myself. And, and it's just this vicious cycle. And, and can we find a balance in that as endurance athletes? Absolutely. Like we, we do not have to be in competition in order to be considered an endurance athlete. And, and a woman can be a brilliant endurance athlete and never run a race a day in her life. And um, mm-hmm. so it's like the, and I've also equally found my most valuable flow states while I was running uh, because it like I've had, the, I've also found the most peace in myself while I was running. Uh, so it's just this balance and it's creating this like, how do we balance identity in the world with what we're good at, with mm-hmm. what we're meant to do, and you know what we're capable of doing week to week? So, how 
how did you, what, what was the precipitating factor or factors that led you to the conclusion that you had to kind of release your identity as an endurance runner and a marathoner? Was it the, was the experience you had in Boston where you looked and, and realized how much of a challenge that was to your body? Like, because there's so many athletes I have who are sort of right on that precipice of they realize how their sport is, is the choices they make to continue yeah. to pursue their sport are ruining their health or their marriage right. or making them miserable or their, their body, you know, their knees or their, uh, I, I consulted one of my athletes recently. She's looking at surgery on her yeah. lady bits because she's having oh. challenges from sitting on a saddle. And it's like, and that's actually shockingly common in the cycling world with women yeah. racing as you, <laughs> when you think about it, it makes sense actually. Talk about today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so how, what were the, what, how did you come to the conclusion or what were the, what were the, the key points that led you to realize like, wow, I don't need to do this anymore. I'm going to change the way I view my relationship to exercise. And, and yeah. was it scary? Like I have so many athletes who are kind of on the cusp of thinking that way. And I'm not encouraging anyone to go, it's not my job to tell you whether to keep being a bike racer or a marathoner, right. To be clear, like, but I just, will you share your experience with that? So people can maybe get their heads wrapped around it. Yeah. Um, well, I kept getting chronically injured and, um, and after college, cause I did cross country for my college and I kept having this weird, like I would have glute spasms. I had two, three stress fractures. Um, and, and, and when I got my stress fractures, like my, my world collapsed. Uh, and you know, at that point, no one was talking about this. Like no one was there to be like, you know, it's okay. You're going to get better. Um, and you should probably look at how attached you are to this as your identity that you collapse inwardly when you can't do this for three months. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I did a little bit of that with myself. Like, I think I had enough consciousness to, I, I started practicing visualization during that time, which was really neat. Like no one else was talking about it. And, and I was like, well, if I visualize the bones coming together, like maybe that will quicken the healing process. And, and if anything, it just gave me the concept of a little bit more control over what was happening. And um, so after college, like I had a dream to do the Boston Marathon. So like I, I had to do that. And I had the gift of having a mentor during that time who I was also working for. And, and you know, I would, I would see him constantly. Like, can you adjust my pelvis for me? Like my pelvis is out again. Like my back hurts today. Like mm. my knee hurts today. Um, well, can you, can you look at this? And so finally I had, um, a teacher, uh, Guy, Guy Boyer, he was doing a session for me and he's like, you have, uh, you know, this strong French accent always like <laughs> into my brain when I go to say the things that he said, he goes, you have valgus leaf, you have valgus left knee. Um, you never run again. And I was like, excuse me. Uh, and he is like, yeah, it's congenital. Um, you should, you should not run. Um, wow. I'm like, hmm, okay. Thanks um, for that nuclear bomb. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, I looked at him and I was like, cool. I was like, I'm still going to run now. And um, I kept running and I kept getting injured and my pelvis stopped going out. And no matter how many stretches I did or pelvic mobilizations or aldoas or anything, like everything just kept go. And then I had horrible periods and mm. my uh, thoracic diaphragm spasmed twice. And, and, um, I would never wish that pain on anybody. Like I felt like I broke my back and, um, I couldn't stand up straight and I also couldn't sleep. 
and, and I couldn't go to the bathroom. And that that's awful. Like if you ever wonder like how much breathing affects everything, just have your diaphragm spasm on you. Um, you'll find out. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so after I did my first marathon, uh, I qualified for Boston. And I was so excited because my first marathon was easy. Like I didn't hit the wall till mile 24. And I was like, holy shit. Like I was in a state of flow the entire time and like completely blissed out. And just like, I couldn't feel any pain in my body. And I, my mind was blank and it was amazing. And, um, and it's something you get attached, attached to very quickly. Cause it's like, I want more of that. Yeah. Like, I want more that again. And, um, and because I was so wrapped up in that being my identity and staying fast and, and winning and being good and seen as good as that, like I had, uh, like I'm from a small, I'm from Key West, Florida. So like super small town and like the newspaper called me and was like Key West conk going to run Boston marathon and all is, and everyone, I was like, Oh my God, this is cool. like, this is mm-hmm. nice. And it's just like spoon feeding my ego or <laughs> like, here you go. Like, oh, there's me. Oh, you want a whole bowl? Here you go. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and then I had like um, someone who would come to our studio, uh, Dave Shula, who was like the son of the owner of like, what is it? The Dolphins football team or something like he was a, like a pretty well-known triathlete and Boston marathoner. And so he was rooting for me. He would come in and be like, how's your training going? And like, and it was so much hype. And so like, I never rested. And, um, and by the time I got to Boston, I was so exhausted and so run down and so not wanting to do the race. And I had just got to like this dream moment for myself and my body was tanked. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had no energy reserves because I didn't rest after my first marathon and, um, and I was just done. And I remember getting to like mile 10 of Boston and being like, what the, I have how many more miles to go? Like, Mm -hmm. God, this is hard. And by the time I was just halfway, I was like, I'm like, I'm I'm done. Like, Mm -hmm. how do I, like, I, I have to finish this. And I'm, I couldn't, it was so hard to take like each step. And so I was just like, I just, I was almost, I had my own personal ceremony for during that race because every mile was just like, okay, like I'm going to finish this. And then I have to stop after this. Like I can't keep doing this to my body. Like this is becoming a cycle of personal abuse and attachment to this identity. And like, I've got this thing that I've got to figure out and maybe it's not permanent, but I still have to figure it out. And I have to figure it out without constantly hurting myself. Uh, so, you know, when I finished, I was just, I was exhausted. Like I couldn't, I was sore for two weeks. Like I couldn't recover and, and my body was just done. And I was, I was tired of being injured all the time. I was tired of like constantly going in and, you know, seeing my mentor being like, I told you so, like, (laughs) are you going to listen now? Uh, and so I just had to listen. I had no other choice. Um, I, I, yeah, yeah. Pain teacher was like <clears throat> slamming the door down, and it was just like, "Are you gonna look now?" Like, mm-hmm. you know, two diaphragm spasms, three stress fractures, like a million pelvic misalignments later. Like, you gonna look? Um, and like, my uterus would also scream like every single month, and I would have to cancel like days of clients 
because I was vomiting and like on the floor in like raging pain. And wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and I have to take the time. Okay. Oh, yeah, shoot. Can, I gotta I, go. That's about to come in. in like okay. Two okay. So, <laughs> I didn't even realize what the title was. Uh, <laughs> we have to end there. Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to, yeah. to chat with us and talk. And we had this whole list of things that I sent Alyssa before, and we didn't even talk about any of it. Any of it. So, Maybe we can do another pod in the future and talk about palaces and bike saddles and all the things. Okay, great, great, <laughs> wonderful. Alyssa, uh, please, before you go, just tell people quickly where they can find out more about you. You're in Austin. You have a practice there. CoachSawyerSays.com and CoachSawyerSays on Instagram. Okay, we will. Um, I will hunt those down and put them in our show notes for people yeah. if they want to find you and if they want to yeah. come enjoy your amazing medicine in Austin. Thank yeah. you so much for making time to talk today. I really appreciate your wisdom and uh, we'll have you on again and we can actually get through our list of questions, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> okay. See you. All right. Bye. Bye. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard-fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse, as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. 
My intent is also not, to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.